Hello and welcome to this message from the river. We hope that this message from Pastor Billy Pate inspires and challenges you towards a greater relationship with Jesus Christ. Now let's join Pastor Billy Pate for another exciting message. You say come to the If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to read a few verses of Scripture there. If you'll just stay with me, we're going to be going back to that text several times uh, throughout this message. I'm not sure that I will finish the message this morning. I'm going to do my best to do that. But uh, I will be mindful of the time as much as a preacher can be mindful of time. That's the disqualifier right there. I don't have to do it now. Amen. We're continuing our series uh, today, Nothing More, Nothing Less. And our series text is found... In 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven, Let me read that to you this morning. It says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. So today I want to talk to you about the anointing on your life. The anointing on your life as I preach to you just a jar of oil. Will you help me pray today? Father, we thank you so much for your presence that we feel in this house today. We thank you, God for a group of people that are willing and wanting to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God, we have come into this place to be transformed. We've come into this house to be changed into your likeness today. And so, Father, I pray that you would give me the strength and the ability to communicate with effectiveness, with authority, with anointing God that is upon my life so that I can impart to this group of wonderful people something that will produce change and transformation in their life this morning. We thank you for the power of your word that it does not return void, but it accomplishes everything that it is sent to do. Let it do that work today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Just a jar of oil. I believe this. I believe that every single child of God has an anointing on their life from the Holy Spirit. Amen. Every single child of God, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... The Holy Spirit comes and becomes a part of who you are. His Spirit is imparted to you. And with that Spirit, there is an anointing on your life. Many of you here are like, Pastor, what are you talking about? What's the anointing? Well, the anointing is this. The anointing is the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do what you are naturally gifted to do above and beyond the limitations of those natural gifts. I'm going to read that to you again. The anointing is the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do what you are naturally gifted to do above and beyond the limitations of those natural gifts. In other words, it's a little something, something extra you need to make an impact in your world. How many of you need a little something, something extra? (laughs) Amen? We all need that, don't we? We need that little extra boost, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. It takes what you are already gifted to do. It takes the things that you are naturally good at. And it takes them to a whole nother level. I want to go to a whole nother level in my life this morning. How about you? It's kind of like this. You know, I may sing well, but when I sing under the anointing, it goes to another level. I may preach well, but when I preach under the anointing, it's different. I may manage well. I may serve well. I may love well. I may do a lot of things well. But when I do them under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, we're talking about another level here. It impacts, it it raises our level of influence in the world around us. And we start impacting it and directing it and changing it. I also believe this, not only that every child of God has an anointing on their life, 
but I also believe that the amount of anointing you have in your life is directly proportional to the amount of anointing you make room for. Let me say that again. I believe that the amount of anointing you have in your life is directly proportional to the amount of anointing you make room for. The anointing does not exist in limited quantities. Listen to me this morning. It does not exist in limited quantities. In other words, it's not limited about how much I can receive. The only limitation is how much I will receive. The only limitation is how much will I allow God to do in my life. Let me prove it to you. Where does the anointing come from? We know it comes from God, right? Do we serve a limitless God? So then the supply is limitless as well. If it emanates from Him and He is limitless, then there is no limit on it. So the supply of the anointing is not limited in my life. It is only limited by our willingness to let it flow in and through our lives. So our capacity for God and our willingness to pour into others are what limit the anointing in my life. Listen to me this morning. Our capacity for God, what I make room for, that's my capacity. A lot of us are carrying around a bunch of junk that is hindering the flow of the Holy Spirit, hindering the flow of God in our lives, and if we can just get rid of some of that junk, unclog some wells in our life, then God could make, we can make some room for Him to do something more. The second limiter is the fact that if I'm full, my only choice to get more is to pour out. I've got to be pouring some things out of my life, not just receiving. It's not just about receiving, it's also about releasing. Amen? And so those two things will limit it. If I want to make more room in my life for for His anointing, then I have to be willing to work in these two areas, capacity and flow. Capacity and flow. I want you to think about that. We're going to get back into it a little bit here as we look at our text. Let's look at verse 1 in 2 Kings chapter 4. It says, A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. Verse 1 begins to set up the story for us. It sets up the situation that we're going to delve into this morning. This is what's going on. Here this lady is. She has recently lost her husband. He is a son of the prophet. What that means is not that he was a physical son of the prophet, but he was in the school of the prophets. And now Elisha was probably the lead prophet or the headmaster, if you will, of that school. And so they would call them sons of the prophets because they would treat themselves as sons. They would submit themselves to the leadership of that head prophet. So one of these sons, one of these enrollees, has passed away and his wife comes to the prophet and she says, look, here's what's going on. My husband is dead. He, he's, he's died. And I have a situation. He was not a good money manager. He incurred a lot of debt. And now because he's dead and he's not able to provide for this family, the creditor has noted that and he has come and take my two sons as his slaves. It was common practice in those days that when you owed money, if you could not pay that money, they would come and they would either take you as a slave, take your children as a slave, and you became basically indentured servants until that debt was paid off. And so here's what's happening. This, obviously, this woman is probably older in age, and the creditor does not want to take her as a slave. She wants, he wants to take those two sons. It probably speaks of the volume of debt also that this man had because he needed a long life to pay off the debt, and he needed two of them. 
And so we have this situation. She says, I'm in trouble and I've got to have some help. She realizes now that she is facing a problem that is much bigger than her. And if she doesn't do something about it, her sons are going to be the one to pay the price. Many of you in here today are probably facing problems that are bigger than you. You're facing problems that seem insurmountable to you. You're facing problems that are huge. And you're coming and you're saying, God, I've got to have some help this morning. I've got a debt here, a problem, a debt load here of problems that are way bigger than me. And if something doesn't happen, it's going to cause not only problems for me, but also for the generation to come. What we refuse to take responsibility for falls on the shoulders of the next generation. I want you to hear that this morning. What we refuse to take responsibility for falls on the shoulders of the next generation. I call that, just this is my phraseology, I just call that generational debt. In other words, I owe some debt that I did not incur. How does that work? Well, it works like this. If my family has had issues dealing in a certain sin area of their lives and they don't deal with those sin areas, then it falls on me to begin to deal with that because it passes on to me. I deal with stuff today in my personal life and stop it so it doesn't affect my children that my parents and my grandparents refuse to deal with. It's fallen on the next generation. And if I choose not to deal with it, it falls on my children to deal with it. But I say it stops with me. The stuff that I've struggled with, my kids aren't going to struggle with it. I'm putting an end to that thing today, and I'm dealing with it right now. Generational debt. Let me give you another example. Look at the national debt that we have in our country. It's a prime example of this in a monetary fashion. Our national debt currently is over $16 trillion. We can't even fathom how many zeros that is. If our generation does not deal with it, we leave it to our children to deal with and so on. Right? Everybody's tracking with me now. Our refusal to take responsibility falls on the shoulders of the next generation. Let's go further. The debt per person in America is over $53,000 per person. All we need to do to deal with the national debt is for everybody in this room and everybody in the country to write a check for $53,000. That's easy. I can write the check, but you can't cash the check. I don't even know if I could write the check. I don't know how to spell 53000 It's worse than that, though, because it's... It's not, it's $53,000 per person, but listen to this. It's worse because the debt per taxpayer is over $148,000 per taxpayer. So for every single person, there's, there's two out of three people that can't pay or won't pay. And so to get it eliminated, it means that that one in three has to pay that $148,000. Now, that's pretty uh, riveting when you really think about how much that affects us. But let's turn it towards uh, what I'm talking about this morning. First of all, do you think that that's fair? Don't sound fair to me. Sounds like a raw deal. Amen? Amen. I don't want to get you stirred up in the national debt. We are doing the same thing in a lot of ways because we are leaving a moral debt to our children. And I would go as far to say, 
just like the national debt is really falling on one out of three Americans, and I would say it's probably worse odds than that, I would say the moral debt falls on one out of three Christians easily. What are you talking about, Pastor? I'm saying this. I'm saying for every person in the church that serves and gives themselves to the cause of Christ, there's probably two that aren't doing anything. So with every generation, what we do is we leave our world more morally bankrupt with fewer people to do anything about it. I don't know about you, but in my lifetime, I haven't seen things get better. I've seen them get worse. And what I've also come to realize is that there's less Christians now than there was. And so not only are we compounding the problem, we're providing fewer people to deal with the problem that has been compounded. It's time for the church to do something about it. It's time for the church to rise up in its power and authority and begin to take back the things that the enemy has stolen from us. We have a compounding problem and it's going to take the anointing to change it. I'm thankful that the woman in our text says this. She says, I'm not willing for my problem to become my children's problem and I intend to do what I can to fix it. She doesn't say, oh well, at least I'm not a slave. Oh well, at least I'm not going to be paying off this debt for the next several years. Little Johnny, little Henry, good luck. She says, no, I don't want to see that happen. And I'm going to do something about it. So she goes to the prophet. Here's what I want you to get this morning. Yes, there are big problems facing our world. Yes, it is overwhelming, but we have been anointed and gifted by God to do something about it. And if we care about our children and our grandchildren, we will invest our lives and efforts in doing something about it. I don't want my kids to grow up in a morally bankrupt world. I don't want them to grow up in a world where Jesus is off limits and there is no uh, connection to a relationship with Him as far as the world's concerned. I believe the church's job is to begin to effect change in our world. And so my number one, my first point here this morning is you are anointed to change your world. You are anointed to change your world. You are anointed to change your world. You are. You are. You mean, Pastor, you're telling me that I'm anointed to change the entire world? I didn't say that. I said you're anointed to change your world. The world you live in. The sphere of influence that you have been given. Can you impact your job situation? Absolutely. Not only can you, you should be. You should be. There should be a different climate when you're there as opposed to when you're not. You should affect change when you walk into the door. Can you change your your situation at home? You bet you can. You have been anointed to do it. You're anointed to change your world. And I just believe that we are not the generation to sit by and watch whatever happens happen. To just check out, disconnect, And just say, well, I'm just going to bunker up here in the church and we're just going to go for it until Jesus comes back and whatever happens out there is just, well. I think we're better than that. I said, I think we're better than that. You're better than that. 2 Kings 4 and 2. So Elisha said to her, she comes to him, says, here's the deal. 
a lot of debt, a lot of problems, two sons, slaves. What are you going to do about it? So Elisha says to her, what shall I do for you? When I read that, I just, I don't get the sense that Elisha says, honey, what shall I do for you? I just kind of get the sense that he's like, what do you want me to do? What, what are you telling me for? I didn't incur the debt. I didn't, I didn't, this isn't my situation. What, what, what do you want me to do? The reason I feel like that that is the way that it's said, first of all, we know a lot about Elisha, and they're pretty direct people. I mean, he wasn't really one to coddle you. You know what I mean? He just pretty much told it like it was. The woman comes, says, look, I've got a problem. Elisha says, what do you want me to do about it? I don't think he's being rude, but rather he is forcing introspection. He's forcing this woman to consider the situation and causes of that situation. He's forcing her to move to desperation. If he just comes and says, yeah, what do you want me to do about it? No problem. He's teaching entitlement. He's teaching, look, if you've got a problem, just come to me and I'll fix your problem. Everything will be good. We'll just wave our hand over the place and God will take care of it. I think what he's saying here is, look, what do you want me to do about it? He's forcing her to think about her situation. He's forcing her to consider what brought me here. He's forcing her to consider her desperation in this moment. How desperate are you? How hungry are you? How much do you want this situation taken care of? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to see the problem solved? Or are you just a little desperate? Are you just wanting a little quick fix? Are you just wanting the problem to get out of your face so you don't have to deal with it right now? Or are you desperate for change? Because here's the deal. When I am desperate, I'm willing to listen. When I am desperate, I am willing to obey. When I am desperate, I am willing to wrestle with solutions. God, i got to figure this out. you got to help me understand. i got to come to some conclusions here. I need some help figuring this problem out. God, I'm not going to bo- quit bothering you until you help me with this problem. I'm going to stay after you until you bring a solution. When we're desperate, we wrestle with solutions. When we're desperate, we seek after God. I can't fix it. I can't do anything about this. I've exhausted my resources, and now I have nowhere else to turn but God. Desperation. When I am desperate, I am on the precipice of a miracle. All of us have heard it said, expectation is the breeding ground of miracles, but I say to you, desperation is even a more fertile ground. It's a more fertile ground because when I'm desperate, I'll do whatever I'm told to do. When I'm desperate, I'm willing to do what God's asking for me. He goes on and he says, what shall I do for you? He is really saying, think, think, woman. Think about your situation. Are you desperate enough for a miracle? After Elisha gauges her desperation, yeah, this woman's ready. This woman's primed. This woman is ready to act. She's ready to move. She's ready to believe. She's at her end of her rope, and she needs a miracle. After he gauges her desperation, he asks her a second question. What do you have in your house? How desperate are you? I'm desperate. What do you have to work with? What do you have in your house? When you're in a desperate situation and you're ready to act, now 
What do you got that God can use? She says this, she replies, and she says, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. I've got nothing. I've been trying to fix this problem on my own. I sold my furniture. I sold my grandma's locket. I sold everything that I had in my house. I have nothing in my house except a little jar of oil. I've exhausted my means. I'm coming to you because I need some help. And you're asking me, what do I got? I tell you, I got nothing but a jar of oil. My second point is this, you have all you need. You have all you need. What do you have to work with, lady? I got a jar. What can we do with a jar? Well, ain't much you can do with a jar. You can hold things in a jar. We can receive some things, I guess, in a jar. You can pour with a jar. All right, so you got a jar. We can hold something and we can pour something. What's in the jar? Well, I got some oil in the, in the jar. Well, what can we do with oil? We can sell the oil. Okay? So we can pour with the jar, and we can sell the oil. All we need now is God to show up and begin to multiply what you have. And we've got the solution to the problem. Don't you know that lady is like, are you kidding me? You've got to be joking me. I thought you were going to send me out and catch a fish and there was going to be coins in his mouth. I thought you were going to multiply my oil right there in front of my eyes and I was going to be... He says, no, what do you got to work with? I've got a jar, I've got some oil, that's all we need. We just need God to do some multiplying and the problem is solved. But I can't multiply the oil, Elisha. No, 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 that's not your job. Your job is to pour and sell God is the multiplier. You see, you need to understand in our text here this morning, the jar represents the gifts and the resources that you have. It represents the gifts and the resources you have. You say, hey, pastor, I don't have a lot to offer. I don't got a lot of stuff. This is what I've got. I'm happy. That's all I got. Can you smile at people? Yeah. Then let God multiply that and affect somebody's life. Can you say hi? Yeah, I can do that. And God can impact somebody with the love of Christ through you if you're willing just to use what you've got. I don't have much. You don't need a lot. Because we're really relying on Him to do the multiplying and make it happen. It does not matter what your gift is. It does not matter what you're good at. God can use that for His kingdom and He will if you'll just release it to Him and give it to you. The jar represents the gifts and resources we have. The oil represents the anointing to use them to produce. I got a jar. I can pour and I can hold stuff with the jar. And the oil is the valuable thing. It's what makes the jar of value. You may be facing an overwhelming situation. We all may be facing insurmountable odds in our lives. But I say to you this morning that you have everything you need. You have what you need. It's not about God bringing something new into your life necessarily. You have what you need to deal with the situation you're facing right now. Pastor, I ain't got nothing. You have what you need. You just got to discover what that is. God has equipped you with the necessary resources and gifts in your life and He has placed His anointing on your life to use them to produce. 
Pastor, produce what? Produce fruit and multiply. Our purpose has never changed since the beginning of time. When God fashioned man, he says in Genesis 1.28, when he told Adam, he said to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, to have dominion over every living thing. Our purpose has never changed, only the expression of that purpose. When God told Adam to do it, he said to do it in the natural. When he's speaking to us to do it, he's talking about it in the spiritual. Our job is still to be fruitful, to show the love of Christ, the fruits of the Spirit, let them flow out of us. That's being fruitful. To multiply, to preach salvation, to share Jesus Christ, and to make more of what we are. To be disciples and disciplers. To subdue and fill this earth and to have dominion over the enemy. That is still our purpose. You have what you need to do it. You have what you need this morning to do those things. 2 Kings 4 and 3, I've got to hurry. It says, Then he said, Go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. Go, borrow vessels. This is what I want you to do. You got a problem? I'm telling you, you got what you need. You got a jar, you got oil, that's all we need. Just go now and start borrowing vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors. Empty vessels, don't get full ones. Bring empty ones. Do not gather just a few. Go. So he tells her. Elisha asks the question to measure her desperation. Now he gives her a directive to measure her faith. Let me say that again. Elisha asked questions to measure her desperation. How desperate are you? How much do you need a miracle? How willing are you to do what God's asking you to do? And now he gives her her directive. He says, this is what I want you to do, to measure her faith. Go borrow some vessels. Don't borrow just a few. Let's see what kind of faith this little widow woman has. Let's measure your faith and see what kind of miracle God can do for you. Is this going to be a miracle of less than enough? Elisha wants to know this. Go borrow some vessels. Don't borrow a few. Is this going to be a miracle where she goes and gets a couple of pots from her neighbor and says, this is all I got faith for? Is it a miracle of less than enough? Can I live with sacrificing one son? Maybe I can pay off enough debt to get, you know, Johnny and keep him. Henry's like his dad anyway. We just don't connect. So maybe I can just let him be a, a servant. Do I have enough faith just to save one son? That's a miracle of less than enough. Does she have a, uh, uh, the faith to believe uh, for a miracle that is just enough? Can I be satisfied saving both sons but not advancing my condition? In other words, can I be okay with God just getting this problem out of my face today and giving me enough breathing room, and then continue just surviving in life. Am I okay with that? Or is this a miracle of more than enough? Can I have enough faith to trust God enough to not only save my sons, but to provide for me from now on? Can I trust God enough that He will deal with this problem for today and defeat it permanently in my life? What kind of faith? So my third point is this. The measure of your faith is expressed in the passion of your obedience. The measure of your faith is expressed in the passion of your obedience. If she went and borrowed a vessel 
one vessel, two vessels from her neighbors, would she be obedient? Well, technically, yeah. Would she be passionately obedient? Mm, No. When God tells us to move, we need to move with vigor. We need to move with passion. We need to move with excitement. God is stirring something up. He's about to do a miracle in my life, and I'm going to have all the faith that it takes to make that miracle happen for me. The measure of your faith is expressing the passion of your obedience. Let me ask you, what do you believe He can do with the anointing in your life? What do you believe that God can do with the anointing that is on your life? Well, I don't know, Pastor. Will you allow Him to multiply the anointing in your life so that it impacts others? Or do you just need Him to just do enough for you? Every person in this room has an anointing and every person in this room has gifts regardless of what lies you have believed. The enemy is a master at lying. And he is not only a master at lying, there's some people that lie and you just know they're lying. They're not good at it. You know what I mean? You ever met somebody like that? You know, they're they're sitting there telling you a lie and you're just like, this is not even a good lie. I could come up with a better lie without even thinking about it. Some people lie when the truth's better. You know, I'm like, why are you lying? The truth is a better situation than what you're lying about. It's not even good. But the enemy's not like that. When he lies, he's good. He's convincing. He puts it in the, the, the bed of your heart and he drives it deep. And every single person in, in this room I don't care how saved you think you are. I don't care how anointed you think you are. I don't care how long you've been in the church. You have probably at some point in your life believed some of the lies that the enemy has told you. And so what we have to do is we have to apply truth to that thing. And we have to continually apply truth until the revelation of the truth comes forth and drives the darkness and the lie out of our lives. Some of you have been told things that's not true, that you're worthless, that you're no good. That's a lie. That is a lie from the enemy. You've been told that you don't have any gifts, that you're not talented, that you can't do anything for the kingdom of God. I say to you this morning, that's a lie. That God has designed you with a purpose in mind. He has ordained you for a purpose in mind. And He wants you to live up to that purpose and do what God has called you to do. Quit listening to the enemy. We all have fallen in those areas and we, we make those mistakes, all of us. But as we seek out the truth and the light of Christ shines in us and on our hearts, we begin to see the reality of what God is truly trying to say to us. And and His identity for us is revealed. I'm telling you, you want to know who you are? Go to the Master who made you. And you'll discover everything there is to know about you. The jar and the oil are so important in our text because it represents us. And I can't express that enough to you this morning. I want you to... Man, as I was writing this message and I was just thinking about it, it just so many things start coming alive to me. And I just thought about how that jar represents us and that anointing, that oil represents the anointing and the supernatural peace that God puts into our life. The oil is the anointing. It is given to us by God. It is supernatural. But it is always expressed through the natural. The anointing is not expressed aside from you. God's supernatural power does not flow outside of you. It is always contained within the vessel. That oil, if it's not in that jar, it's it's a mess. 
But when it's in that jar, it's contained. And it's usable. And it's something that can, can, can do something. We are that vessel. The jar or the vessel is the natural mechanism by which it is held and poured. You are that natural flesh mechanism by which God pours Himself into you and you release Him into this world. It doesn't happen aside from you. I can't drive that home to us enough. You are the jar and on your own, yes, you are not that spectacular. I promise you. None of us are. We're just an old jar, right? We're just an old jar. But when there's something of value in the jar, oh, that jar takes on a whole other meaning, doesn't it? It takes on a whole other level of value. Yeah, but you have something in you that when it is released by you and multiplied by Him, it becomes miraculous. You may not be spectacular. You may look at yourself in the mirror and say, man, I just don't have a lot to offer. And most of us, in the context of just you, would probably agree. But when the anointing is on your life, but when God comes on the scene, and he says, yeah, you may not be all that, but listen, I'm about to fill you up, and together we are all that. Together we can do anything. I'm about to give you that little something, something extra in your life that catapults you beyond what you are just mediocre in and make you spectacular. Apart from him, I can do nothing, right? But with him, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We are that jar. And here's what I would say to you this morning is quit sitting on the shelf full and start pouring out. Quit sitting on the shelf full and start pouring out. For years, I've heard from church member after, I hope God just does something great in my life this morning. Hey, I hope God does something great in your life this morning too. But I would rather God do something with your life to do something great in somebody else's life. That didn't get a good amen. Pastor, I just want to come and get filled up. Well, a lot of you are filled up. <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead. I'm going to wait off into it right this morning. Some of us are so bloated up that we can't move. And what we don't need is more. We need to pour out. We need to lessen ourselves so that God can put something new in our lives. I've been filled up, but I've been filled up with the same old junk for the last 25 years. I need something new in my life. I need something fresh in my life. I need a fresh well of the Holy Spirit flowing through me. Not the same old stagnant yesterday miracle that God did in my life. Something fresh and new. God wants to do that. Quit sitting on the shelf. Start pouring out. Elisha says this, and I've got to, I'm going to stop here for this point. Elisha says, go borrow some vessels. Okay, Elijah, bar from who? He says, all your neighbors. Somebody say all. All All your neighbors. Don't you miss a neighbor. You go to every single one of your neighbors and you borrow something from everyone. If it's a butter dish, you borrow it. You make sure they know that you've come to their house to borrow a vessel. What's he doing? He's setting the stage for not only this woman to be impacted but for all of her neighbors to be impacted. You know every time she goes and knocks on the door, can I borrow some of your vessels? What do you need my vessels for? All right, you know that prophet? 
I got a problem. He said if I would come borrow vessels, he's going to fill them up. I don't know how he's going to do it, what's going to happen. I'm just, I'm doing what he told me to do. And house after house after house after house, she repeats the same story. Well, by the time she's done, every neighbor is curious as to what this prophet's going to do with that oil. What's going to happen? Who's going to show up and do a miracle in this situation? God not only wants to impact you through your hard times and your difficulties, He wants to impact everybody that you have influence over. He's trying to do a miracle that's bigger than you. And He's trying to use you to do it. God's miracles are always designed to impact more than just us. And I would just say to you as I close today, if you are setting on the shelf, refusing to pour, it's not just you that is affected. It is everyone with empty vessels. We hope you have enjoyed and been encouraged by this message. We would love for you to join us at the river on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Sunday school and at 10.30 for morning worship. We also provide our midweek service for all ages on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. If you would like to support the various ministries at the river, please go to our giving tab. We would love for you to visit us at 1110 South Preston Street in Burkburnett, Texas. And as always, we encourage you to come experience life with us at the river. Till I found myself face down on your shore. You say, come to